you want to work in your overlap of what's genuinely interesting to you, skills you either have or could easily possess, and then opportunities that present themselves. And welcome back to Off Record with your host, Corey Levy. Today, we speak to entrepreneur, author, and early-stage investor, Scott Belsky, who is well-known for co-creating the online portfolio platform, Behance, which later sold to Adobe in 2012, and he wrote top-selling books, Making Ideas Happen and Maximize the Middle. Scott is currently the co-founder of referral network startup, Prefer. He is a chief product officer and executive vice president at Adobe and a venture partner at Benchmark. He is also a seed investor with over 100 investments, which range from Pinterest to Uber. In this week's episode, he takes us back to when he landed a job at Goldman Sachs, how current graduates should decide where to work, when he quit to start Behance, how to turn an idea into a product, convincing talent to work for you, and his first investment, which happened to be Pinterest. There's that and many more. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record. Thank you, Scott, for joining on the show today. Thank you for having me, Corey. Of course. So I'd like to start out by asking you, what were your teenage years like? What was high school like? I went to one school through ninth grade, and then I went to another school from 10th to 12th grade, but I took a six-month period off to live on a farm in Vermont during that period as well. So it was kind of choppy. You know, a number of different things in a short period of time. What do you think made uh, you distinct? I think those were like years where I... like. I think I was behind the curve a little bit and kind of like finding myself, finding what I was interested in doing and exploring. I think I've always been sort of an introvert. So I was always kind of doing lots of kind of projects in my garage type of thing. I remember through high school, various art projects and things like that. And I think about the friendships I really made that ended up defining you know, a big part of my life happened in college, not in high school. So and maybe that's partly a function of the fact that I wasn't in one particular high school for four years. Gotcha. And then you went to Cornell, is that right? I did. What was that like? I loved Cornell. You know, one of the things I loved about it is how many different colleges they actually have there. The College of Human Ecology, where I took a lot of the classes in the design and environmental analysis major that really ended up you know, changing the course of my life. There's an agriculture and life sciences college. I took a lot of atmospheric science classes and science about systems classes and and there was like the arts college where I took all my economics and a lot of the business classes and being in a place where you could pursue any study in anything, which is kind of like a core value of Cornell was just the right place at the right time for me. And if you could go back in time, is there anything you would tell yourself to kind of get more out of those four years <laughs> when you're 18 to 22? Aside from like chill the fuck out, everything's going to be okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think one of the things I would have told myself is that the stuff I was doing outside of class probably was way more important than what I was doing inside of class in terms of defining my interests and building my capabilities as a leader and a creative thinker. And a lot of the sort of things I did on the side, like various clubs and hosting a conference and all these other things were just absolutely pivotal parts of my education. And it's funny, you just don't get course credit for the stuff that actually moves the needle the most. You graduated school and you went to Goldman Sachs for school, is that right? Yeah, so I graduated in 2002. And, and in 2001, I had to choose whether I'd get an internship, you know, and I was choosing various types of companies. And at the time, if you wanted to go into business at any point in your life, you kind of cut your teeth on Wall Street. So I found this job at Goldman and first year and a half or so, I just absolutely hated it. It was more of a finance type job. And then I was going to leave the firm and uh, they said, well, if you have a, anything else you'd want to do, what would it be? And I said, well, 
I'd love to learn how an organization is improved and how succession planning happens and how leaders are selected. I just was so interested in the leadership development and organizational management side of it. And I got this weird job in the executive office doing what is basically like management consulting for the firm and clients. And I think it was during that period of time, I kind of fell in love with the idea of organizing and building culture and stuff like that. And what do you think got you to that? Like if you were right now giving advice to someone just kind of graduating school, trying to figure out what to do with their lives, what do you think some ways wanting to figure out what he or she's good at? Well, I think there's a couple things. First of all, you want to work in your overlap of what's genuinely interesting to you, skills you either have or could easily possess, and then opportunities that present themselves. And every job you take, I think, you want to just get incrementally closer to the absolute intersection of those three things. And for me at Goldman, you know, I had skills. I genuine interest was, you know, increasingly towards like leadership development and organizational improvement and using kind of design to help get people aligned with a strategy and things like that. And even though that wasn't at all the job I was destined to have over the long term, it was incrementally closer. And so that's what I always advise people when they're choosing what to do next. I'm like, hey, don't optimize for the additional buck, especially early in your career. Just do whatever you can to get incrementally closer to what you're genuinely interested in, what you have skills for, or can easily learn, and whatever opportunities are around you. Was Goldman Sachs the only opportunity that when you were starting your career that, that you had, or were you picking between a couple of the different? You know, I think it was probably the most accessible opportunity to me, only because, you know, I was in New York at a college here, you know, I didn't have exposure to kind of the tech world out West yet at all. And I knew like people there you know, who are recent graduates who I knew at undergrad who kind of were keeping an eye on me and saying, hey, if you want an internship, let me know type of thing. And so in some ways, it was kind of my shoe into having a job after college. It was just, you know, that was the opportunity part. And then you left Goldman, you saved a little bit of money, you quit the comfortable job at one of the you know world's most prestigious firms to start a brand new project. What was that like? Can you, can you walk me through um, <laughs> uh, kind of what led to that? And then, you know, wh when you kind of ripped the bandaid off, what that was like? Yeah. So, well, you know, this latter role I had at Goldman that I actually enjoyed and learned a lot from for about three years, I was always interested in applying the stuff I was learning in that job around organizational development and leadership development and just structures for communication strategy within companies. And I was always interested in applying that to the creative world. This is an area, a world that I kind of immersed myself in in college a little bit and took classes in design and the idea was like, gosh, you know, the creative world proclaims to be one of the most disorganized communities on the planet. And everyone almost wears disorganization as a badge of honor in the art and design worlds to some extent, or at least did. Why not just try to help organize and get these people's careers on track and help designers have a, a more important role within their companies? And I just felt like there was a need to focus less on making people more creative and more on making creative people more organized. So you had this idea, and I guess what happened next, you, you didn't go yeah. right out and raise capital for it. Right. Short version is I had this idea to organize the creative world, and people said, yeah, uh, good luck with that. Nevertheless, put together a plan for what I thought a great business. I came up with the idea of Behance, which is kind of people making enhancing themselves, taking an active role in their creative careers, and put together a model that included a series of paper products, a online network for creative professionals conference, like way too many things out of the gate. Let's just say that. But I would say that 
everything was on mission and everything was about organizing creative people. And then started the process of meeting other people that might want to work with me and some collaborations outside of work, you know, after work, late at night with a bottle of wine type of stuff. And, and then investing a little bit of my own money to get this thing off the ground. And, you know, long story short, five years of bootstrapping before we ever raised a cent from a venture capitalist. And if you could go back in time, would you have kept it that way? Or would you have said, all right, well, maybe we should should raise some capital on year two or you know, month six, or where you've kept bootstrapping, you know, if you go back in time? You know, it's hard to say that you regret, right? Because there were so many things I learned in that five years of being in the middle. And there were definitely some of what I like to call Behance's lost years, where we just kind of were so focused on paying the bills and staying break even that we didn't invest in certain areas like DevOps and like, you know, front engineering and mobile, we were a little behind on because we didn't have the money to do it. But what we did do is we built a very loyal team. We built a very solid strategy and we built a culture, you know, that was very much grounded in the reality of a tight budget and out executing our competition. I think that those things helped us succeed over the long term. Are you technical? Were you technical? Who built the site on day zero? Yeah. So on day zero, I definitely wasn't technical. I was leading product and we hired two early engineers. Our first three engineers, actually, Dave, Chris, and Brian, two of which are still actually with the team and actually still at Adobe over 10 years later. You know, they weren't even qualified to do what they were doing at the time either. I mean, none of us were. That's the crazy thing. And I think we had to redo and rebuild. And there were tons of technical debt that we probably unnecessarily had because we didn't know what we were doing. But we kind of taught each other and taught ourselves how to play these roles. And that was kind of part of the magic, I have to say, in the early days. And how did you meet those two people and convince them to join this you know, basically bootstrap startup with, you know, little resources. Maybe they didn't know enough to know better at the time. Um, That's very possible. And we joke about that now. But I'll tell you what, I think a big part of being a founder is sales. And sales is something that we typically say, oh, you know, as salespeople do these like, you know, cold calling and whatever. Actually, like everything is sales, right? Telling a narrative to your early employees, reinforcing that narrative month over month, a year over year to keep the team together, telling it to investors to raise money, telling it to customers to buy your product. And I think that's one of the most important things that I did in those early days is I was always trying to refine and reiterate a vision of where we were going and why and how we were going to get there and when it didn't work, what we were going to change and uh, and really trying to understand and learn you know the logic i'm very logic driven and i try to always know the right questions to ask even if i don't have the technical aptitude to know the answer and that's how i led us in the early days in addition to sales if there was another thing you could pinpoint that has like contributed to your success more than anything what else do you think that would be and why well i think it's certainly the attention to detail on the design and and product front and grounding our ambitions with product not on our passion for the solution but with empathy for our customers. Uh, I was always trying to just understand why was someone not using something? Why were they using something? Why were they using a competitive product? I mean, all of these obsessions, I think, if I look back, a lot of them were really tagged as empathy seeking. And I also always really, really prioritized, it sounds obvious, but product concepting time. We would have a day every week where I would spend five hours just me and the design team. And then at some point when we were ready with the key engineering leaders, just going over, laboring over, you know, every little product attribute and interaction. And I think those meetings carried us through quite a bit. And now like see some of the other side of the table by investing uh, and working with other startups, what are some ineffective things that you see people do in 2018 right now? 
A few ineffective things that I see quite common in the startup world. One would be outsourcing design to a third party altogether, outsourcing product to different people. I mean, anything that is your competitive advantage, you must do in-house. You must build and develop capability in-house to do those things because a lot of the greatest breakthroughs happen at the margins. And so if you're saying that design is important and product is important to your company, like how could you have anyone else do that, even the first version of it? Um, it sounds easier to raise money and to hire another firm to do it. I just have not seen many remarkable products and breakthroughs come out of that sort of model. I also think not really valuing the first mile experience. I think another common thing I see startups do is they focus so much on the core product experience and the feature set that they think are important. And then right before they launch, they're like, oh, shit, we got to do a first mile. Like, you know, what should the tour be? What should the copy be? What should the default state of the product be when people come in? And they spend the last mile of their experience making the product. That last mile is the first mile of their customer's experience using the product. And then they come back and say, I don't understand why the top of our funnel is so inefficient and why we can't convert anyone. It's like, well, you didn't spend any time on the the only experience that all of your customers have. So it's, um, you know, that's another thing that I think a lot of startups get backwards. Got it. And I want to talk a little bit about Scott Belsky in 2018. Like, what are some life hacks that you do that very few people know about? Or what is a life hack that you do that very few people know about like right now? Well, I think a big part of my life right now is context switching. You know, I have been a very active seed investor over the years uh, and am still a venture partner with Benchmark and, and have you know a few things I do with uh, with the firm. And then And then I have my day job, which is now I've jumped back in to be chief product officer at Adobe and focus on helping these worldwide creative tools and systems become more modern and more accessible to more people, which I think is a really exciting and valiant thing to do. And I'm super pumped about it. And the challenge I always have is context switching between those things and my writing and then, you know, other sort of projects that just keep me you know, on the cusp of learning. And how do I do that? I, I'm just really, really ridiculous with my scheduling. You know, I really am very stringent about this period of time is for this. And I schedule time also to digest things and to consider them. I mean, I love being in the air because it forces me to just think, you know, and sketch. And I think in this connected age where we're constantly responding to our many inboxes of whatever's coming into us and just being reactive to what whatever is at the top, I think in, in this connected age, disconnection is a competitive advantage. If you have a period of time in your day where you can focus on how to move the needle in an area that's important to you and really read and digest, I mean, you're probably in the minority of people that actually has that because by default, we don't have it anymore. Do you schedule disconnection time? I do. Every week, I do. How much? How often? Usually between five and eight hours, which a, is a lot. A week or a day? A week of absolute disconnection, which I don't know if that sounds like a lot or a little, but it's actually very hard to do when you have every team that you work with and wherever 100 startups you've ever been involved with reaching out in various times asking for meetings and things. You just have to really compartmentalize. Right. No, that makes sense. And and I want to go back and you know talk about some of the, the companies that you've invested in. You just said over 100 companies you, you've seen invested? Yeah. Over the last, let's see, since 2010 was my first investment. So eight years. What was your first investment? My first investment ever was Pinterest. How did you discover that? What was your first meeting like and the check writing process like? Yeah, well, you know, it was my first investment, meaning that it was my only investment after Behance. And I did it for maybe unorthodox reasons, because at the time I had no business being an investor as an early struggling founder of a startup. But Ben was also 
you know, building a product with a grid, just like Behance was. He was very focused on getting designers engaged with his product. I saw from my own analytics of Behance a marked rapid month-over-month growth of visitors from Pinterest. So I knew they would be a major lead gen for our product eventually, even though at the time StumbleUpon and of course other organic and search-oriented ways were the major sources of traffic. But also I wanted a West Coast network. I wanted to be involved with some companies that are on the other side because we were based in New York, that I could learn from. Ben came from Google and had a great network. And I felt like, well, if I can be an advisor to him, he's asking me for assistance on the product and you know, first-time user experience and some of the marketing copy and stuff like that. I can also learn a lot from him. And you know, if I invest in his company almost as like a price of admission, great. <laughs> so I went ahead with the, uh, with the investment and certainly Pinterest has outperformed my wildest expectations in terms of what it ended up becoming. Did you have any idea? No, although I always was blown away by Ben and, and, uh, and certainly as I met many more founders since, you know, there were just very few as thoughtful and patient and strategically inclined as Ben. Are there any like unusual common traits that you uh, have discovered between people like Ben and the founders of Warby Parker and, and Uber and some of the more successful companies that you've backed? Yeah, I think a couple things, you know, aside from the obvious but hard to do, which is really have a design-driven approach to product or even a designer founder like Ben had. I think another one is to be as focused on optimizing process as they are on product and business. Everyone always talks about making a product better and A-B testing and everything else. But not a lot of founders are always thinking about their own organization as like a product. You know, how are we? Well, we're going to test having this person lead this instead of that person. We're going to test not having this meeting anymore and try this approach instead. Or we're going to, you know, every year we're going to try new tools. Like a lot of these people, and Ben was always this way. I remember, you know, six or eight months into being an investor in the seed stage of Pinterest, checking in with him and being like, so like, what's, you know, what's your plan for the next six to 12 months? And I was expecting like a, a roadmap, you know, and instead he was, uh, he said something along the lines of, you know, I just want to, I just want to, you know, figure out and like establish a better process around, I forget what particular area of his business, but it was so, I was so struck by the fact that his his objective in that time period was like process oriented. And that was, uh, you know, I think is the best practice. When you see that when you're meeting with founders, is that like 10% of the time or, or even less than that? I would say it's less than 10. Well, I have just a, a few more questions. What's something you know you should do right now, but you haven't done yet? Okay. Um, let's see. Um, gosh, I mean, live abroad for a year. <laughs> That's one thing I should do at some point, but I haven't done yet. I think also have a little more time for kind of the artistic side of me, which I just have woefully neglected. I'd say those are two things. How do you find like untapped talent or diamonds in the rough? I just try to follow like my curiosities when it relates to both investment opportunities as well as people to hire for my own projects is things that I'm deeply curious about. I find other people that are also share those curiosities and are contributing in some way. I try to tune in and, you know, measure people by their content online, you know, what, what, what makes me think of something differently um, and what sort of pushes my imagination. And then I want to learn and meet, meet these people and learn more from them. And then in my experience, you know, those efforts tend to lead to opportunities, whether it is to work with them or for them, or they work for you. And, and who are like three people that you think are kind of undervalued right now or aren't, um, kind of getting the credit that they deserve or that you think will be like uber successful that but maybe aren't yet? 
Oh, it's hard to it's hard to pick. I'm just I'll just think about you know interactions I've had in the last few weeks to answer that question. On the investor side, I've always been a huge fan of Samil Shah. He has this very very tiny fund called Haystack. I think he's like a very underrated person in that community. He just works as an own lone operator. He prolific writer. Everything he writes is interesting, and he has a tremendous portfolio that I think people overlook. You know, Hunter and uh, Satya from Homebrew, I would say, are also similarly underrated sometimes in the in the investing world. Uh, in terms of founders, I think there are, you know, there's a bunch of companies that I would say, you know, I think Sam Hashemi, who's a CEO and founder of a company called Remix, which is doing like software for designers of cities. You know, this is someone who literally is building software that bus systems in over 250 cities around the country are running on. And you think about you know, what sorts of new technologies could transform the way cities work in ways we don't even anticipate with our current thinking around companies like Uber. I mean, I think Remix is one of those. Oh, Ben from Amino. I mean, Amino is like a, a long tail of very niche very highly engaged communities. Ben Anderson, another founder and CEO. So and these are a bunch of folks. Allison Wood is a woman who's running a really cool company called Camera IQ out of New York that's thinking about the AR space. And she's one of the, I think, one of the you know greatest underrated thinkers in the AR world. Another person that just comes to mind. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. And then switching real quick back to Behance, did controversy play a role in the success of Behance in any way, shape, or form? Controversy. Well, I, not necessarily, although one of the things I always believed and still do is that if you're a community, you have a responsibility to use that role at the epicenter of an industry for good, even if it's not for profit. And uh, a lot of that is with advocacy work. And I mean, one of the examples of Behance that was also often controversial because we were fighting against a lot of startups that were doing this, we were always adamantly against spec work, this idea of a platform like 99designs or others basically going out to a community of designers and saying, hey, you know, everyone do this logo and one of you is going to get paid for it. Because if you do the math, you know, literally years of 24-7 labor is wasted off of a small prize that only one person gets. And so we were very against that. And I remember being on panels fighting with the CEOs of these other companies, founders, you know, of these crowdsourcing companies that were saying, oh, this was good. And, um, and I do think that that example of controversy helped define Behance and its values. People kind of knew what we stood for, oftentimes by seeing what we were against. Gotcha. What about some of like the work, some of the artists that were on Behance? Or was there any art that was kind of controversial? That Oh my gosh, all the time. I mean, you know, the artistic expression is all about pushing edges. So, um, so we did, and we always tried to have a safe space. And since the acquisition by Adobe, the team was very focused on making sure that we still were pushing the envelope on supporting artistic expression, even if it was controversial. Has that been like challenging uh, in, in some regard or no? It hasn't been. You know, it hasn't really been because we are very transparent about what can be displayed where and why. You know, we have to obey by certain laws. I mean, there are certain things, for example, you can't show in India or Germany that you can show in the United States. And right. we just try to Rather than delete it from the world, we try to really develop systems to allow each country to have the maximum artistic expression allowable by law. And how do you think artists should deal with controversy? Do you think they should you know, seek it or just kind of like not shy away when it comes up? Well, I think, you know, the tolerance for controversy has to come from authentic creative expression. When someone's just trying to get everyone's feathers riled, I don't think that comes across well, nor has lasting value, you know, in the world of art. But when someone expresses themselves and 
and um, and is shunned for it, I think they're ultimately celebrated. Um, you know, even if they're shunned at first, because it's 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 an observation of what's real. You know, it's chronicling a real energy in the you know in the world, not a fake one. And uh, and at the end of the day, people come around. Awesome. And when was the last time you kind of like broke the rules or kind of pushed the envelope? Not necessarily broke the law, but kind of. Well, you know, one of my mentors is this guy, Seth Godin. You know, I try to connect with once a year. He's a great author and thinker. And he always likes to say, you know, oftentimes when I say goodbye to him, he's like, keep causing some ruckus. And I always say that in my head when I'm in a meeting now at Adobe in a big company trying to lead some change in certain areas. And there's like an elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about. You know, I sort of say to myself, Scott, like, speak up, you know, and and I think now the ruckus that I cause or the quote unquote rules that I break are really within a, you know, established norms and culture in an air, in an industry that's rapidly changing. You know, we got to think about what's the future of AR, what's the future of experience and interface design. And we can't kind of rest on our laurels nor, nor stay grounded and necessarily connected to, you know, the culture of yesterday. There's evolution that has to happen. Awesome. Well, any kind of favorite book recommendations or podcast recommendations for someone kind of just starting their career? Gosh, um, well, your podcast is great. You already know that. I'm a big fan of Tim Ferriss's as well. I'm, I like the ones that uh, the Reed, Reed Hoffman's doing these days. I just read this book, Tribe by Sebastian Junger, which is really about just the default nature of humans to want to be together and the role of community, which I encourage people to read. Awesome. And my last question is, is there anyone you'd like to kind of thank um, on this show that has helped you? Oh, that's helped me over the years? Gosh, yeah. you know, so many people. I think there are people like Beth Comstock, who formerly vice chairman of GE, who, you know, was one of our first big clients at Behance and first made me believe we could make it a sustainable business. Um, people like John Maeda and Seth Godin, who I just mentioned, who've been like mentors over the years and, and at important times have really helped me out. People like Fred Wilson and Albert Wanger from Union Square Ventures, who are the first folks to invest in me on. And also, you know, the partners I've worked with at Benchmark, who've taught me so much about that world. And all the founders, gosh, I mean, you know, come on, don't get me started. But anyways, I am a lot of, very grateful, realize always and remind myself that most of what I'm excited about I would not have if it wasn't for a lot of other folks who... Uh, gave me a chance awesome well thank you um thank you once again for listening we hope you enjoyed this week's episode with scott belsky thank you so much again scott for coming on the show it was great listening to the behind the scenes of his risky move from the corporate world of goldman sachs to starting his bootstraps project and the advice he gives to anyone who finds themselves falling in the same path you can find all of these links in the description you can also follow your host Corey levy on twitter at Corey. thank you once again for listening and we'll see you next week on off record